In his book, The Bridges at Tokori, novelist James Michener writes movingly of the heroes who fought in the Korean conflict. In the book's final scene, an admiral stands on the darkened bridge of his carrier waiting for pilots he knows will never return from their mission. And as he waits, he asks in the silent darkness, where did we get such men? Almost a generation later, I asked that same question when our POWs were returned from savage captivity in Vietnam. Where did we find such men? We find them where we've always found them, in our villages and towns, on our city streets, in our shops and on our farms. I have one more Vietnam story, and the individual in this story was brought up on a farm outside of Cureo in DeWitt County, Texas, and he is here today. Thanks to the Secretary of Defense, Cap Weinberger, I learned of his story, which had been overlooked or buried for several years. It has to do with the highest award our nation can give, the Congressional Medal of Honor given only for service above and beyond the call of duty. Secretary Weinberger, would you please escort Sergeant Benavides, Benavides forward? Ladies and gentlemen, we're honored to have with us today Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, U.S. Army, retired. Let me read the plain, factual, military language of the citation that was lost for too long a time. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army, retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2nd, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Bienavides Vitas was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. 
He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude for service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have a very, very special guest on for this podcast. He is a Special Forces veteran of Vietnam. He served in MAC VSOG, and he's also the author of Across the Fence, John Stryker-Meyer. Thank you for coming on here. It's an honor to have you on. Well, thank you, John. Pleasure's all mine. 
Yeah, so I um, <clears throat> I picked up your book maybe like five years ago or some around that time, maybe six years ago. Sure. And it was my uh, it was my first introduction into McAfee Sog. Um, I can't remember how I ended up uh, learning about it, but um, you know that book really blew my mind on uh, you know some of the things that you guys were doing uh, in North Vietnam, uh, North Vietnam, in uh, Laos, Cambodia, um, and uh, I, I think a part of what really sort of shocked me is because I'd never heard of Sog up until that point. But you guys had a, a a number of years where you didn't talk about it at all after Vietnam, right? Yeah, we signed documents saying you can't talk about it. And if you do, you'll be federally prosecuted. For 20, we had, we had to wait 20 years. So there was no talking about it for 20 years, at least publicly. Correct. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also... Um, you know, I kind of want to touch on that because I had, uh, you know, as you know, I I know Mike Stahl, who was also a, a special forces guy, a member of SOG, and and he served. And yeah, um, we served together up at Da Nang at CCN. Yep, yep. He was in CCN, and uh, and he had mentioned to me. I don't remember if we were on a podcast or we were just having a conversation, but he had mentioned that. Uh, Someone in his family had served in like an airborne unit, uh, infantry, and uh, and wasn't combat in Vietnam. And uh, I don't remember if it was his, uh, an in law or something like that. But I remember I distinctly remember him saying that even though they had both both served in combat um, in Vietnam, they never had a conversation about it. And that struck me as uh, sort of interesting and and perhaps. Uh, telling of of sort of the times you know in those days i feel like there was just a a difference in the way people went about things Uh, you know especially when it came to you know uh, men talking to each other about their feelings and and things like that oh sure yeah yeah i mean we we couldn't talk about it so when i came home like in my case i had all my buddies that I knew before I got in the army, uh, most of them had different military or national guard experiences. Like we could only talk about contemporary things or things before we went in the army. Couldn't, what'd you do in Vietnam? Well, I was, in, I was in special forces and, uh, no, they kept us really busy over there. <laughs> right. Next topic. <laughs> oh. so, uh, yeah. That, so that was the, um, and, you know, just to let you know how serious they were about that, um, after Across the Fence came out, my dad read it, and he goes, you know, now I understand why this guy would come by our house and pick up our trash. Wow. He said he did it a few times, and I recognized him. He was a, you know, a tall African-American gentleman, and my dad got a job at the post office where the FBI in Trenton, New Jersey, was located. We lived in Trenton at the time. My dad goes, I saw that guy at the post office, and I saw him up by the FBI building. They were picking up our trash just to see if we were saying anything about your operation. Yep. So they were serious about it. Yeah, it was very secret. Um, 
even you know, I think about uh, I'd recently watched the uh, Medal of Honor citation for a guy named Roy Benavides. Um, oh, of course, my God, yeah, and it incredible uh, story. I mean, uh, incredible in, in terms of what he was able to accomplish. Several Americans did die that day, but um, even till this day, there was a uh, there's a video on YouTube. It's it's uh, it's kind of went viral, and it's it's one of these things where they take a uh, an event or a moment in history, and they sort of animate it and kind of make it like a simple breakdown of what took place. Right. And even and that that came out, you know, last year, I believe, sometime last year. And um, yeah, the Department of the Army did that, I think. Oh, did they? The okay. Historical section, yes, sir. Okay, yeah. So even when talking about it. In, in that sense, or in the actual citation, uh, President Ronald Reagan had, had read it. Um, they mentioned that it was in Vietnam when, in fact, it wasn't. Uh, yeah. And that was just the the sort of the secrecy surrounding SOG, you know. Oh, yeah. It was, it was Cambodia. And right. uh, it was, you know, in May 1968 was a deadly year. And uh, uh, I think that I think it was May. When he uh, got in, uh, got involved in that mission, yes, sir. Okay, so you mentioned uh, Trenton, New Jersey. So is that where you're from? Yes, sir. Grew up in Trenton. Uh, was on a milk truck. Grew up there with my dad, and uh, mom was a uh, uh, she was a piano teacher, choir director, and uh, like, and then dad just there. Uh, very regular milkman, both very active in our church, and uh, the rest is history. There are a number of um, sort of notable uh, guys who served in the, in the military from the New Jersey area. and I think there was a couple of star guys from New Jersey as well, if I'm not mistaken. Well, actually, we had six in Trenton alone. Wow, that's incredible. Including Fred Zabatowski, who earned the Medal of Honor. Uh, running missions out of uh, FOB2 in Kantum. Wow, that's incredible. Oh, yeah. And I know, because when I was uh, when I was at FOB1, my mom wrote me a letter. She said, you know, little Tommy Waskovich, he's a Green Beret, too, and he's in Vietnam, but we don't know where he is. Wow. And I never knew either. And this was 1968, and when I finally got out, I came home, and I... Uh, my dad was a milkman. We used to deliver Tom milk and his family. Wow. And his dad had been in the 82nd uh, Airborne. He jumped into uh, Normandy on D-Day. So we all knew who his dad was in terms of military service. A great guy. And so I got together with Tom. He says, yeah. He says, I said, where were you? He said, well, I can't talk about it. I says, so you were in, you were in C&C, which we called, that was a, we always talked about it that way. Instead of Mac V. Soggy, he goes, well, yeah. I said, why well, is that FOB1? He goes, I was at two. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and then the day that we got my top secret briefing for SOG, the, uh, the sergeant who handed out the paperwork was Mike Byard. And Mike and I had gone to uh, the junior high school, number one in Trenton. And we went to Trenton High School together. And I was just astounded. Here we are at this top secret briefing. Who's handing out the paperwork? Michael Byer. Who <laughs> That's crazy. It's like mind-blowing. And then four or five years later, after he got out, my mom goes, hey, 
there's a there's the uh, the gas and meter man comes by. He knows you. His name's Michael Byer. Do you remember Michael from Junior One? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I know. You talk about small world, right? Right. <laughs> That's so crazy. It's it's it is such a small world, and to think that. Um, you know, you, you go into a place to get this secret briefing and there's somebody you know from the neighborhood, right? Yeah. And and he was one of the few guys at that briefing who actually had gone out with the, with the Navy and some of the SEALs when they were going up north doing some of their beach operations, mm. dropping off some agents up there. But they needed a combo guy, so they put Mike out there. And then when he was near the end of his tour of duty was right around August 23rd, 1968. He had about a week left in country. And that was when FOB4 got hit, one of our bases in Da Nang on August uh, 23rd, 68. And it was a, it was the most devastating attack in Special Forces Green Beret history. We lost uh, 16 Green Berets wow. in one night. It was a sapper attack. And Mike was there. He was in the, uh, in the comm center. And... Obviously, <laughs> a short timer fighting for his life in the last week in country. Yeah, so you mentioned the um, the seals. Uh, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. So I know sure. SOG was primarily comprised of Green Berets, right? Yeah, anything across the majority of the missions across the border were uh, special forces, but in the very early days at Contum FOB two. There were some SEALs, I don't know them by name, uh, who actually were attached to SOG, and they ran some recon missions across the fence. Yeah. And then, of course, the SEALs were also doing stuff up north on the beach, like taking in, dropping off some agents, picking them up, and, uh, you know, um, oh, God, the Navy Commander Norris got his Medal of Honor. Yeah. When they rescued Bat Cat 21, and then there was another SEAL who got a Medal of Honor for rescuing him. Right. Uh, I think his name was uh, Mike Thornton. Mike Thornton, yes, indeed. Amazing stories. My God. Incredible. And I think that may be the only instance where a Medal of Honor recipient was rescued by someone who was then awarded the Medal of Honor for that action. So very unique. Yes, it is. It's amazing. And and when you hear the stories, we I've been to a couple of fundraisers where Mike uh, spoke about the event. And uh, then we and then one night we were at, I was at the same table with for and he's so humble down to earth. But he talked a little bit about it because, you know, some of the people were curious and Mike was kind enough to indulge him. I'm just sitting there with chills up and down my back, you know. My God. Yeah, an incredible story. Um, Absolutely. And and it's, you know, that story. You know, he he was awarded the Medal of Honor for that action, but I mean, just, I mean, Mac V. Sog had a 100% casualty rate. I mean, that's in, insane just to even think about it. Like, I mean, we'll get into that, but like. Every time you guys went on a mission, you were basically just outnumbered by hundreds or even thousands in some cases. I mean, it's just it, it like I couldn't believe what I was reading when I was reading your book. And then eventually, I, you know, I read a couple others. Um, sure. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I just thinking about that kind of um, sort of being up against those kind of odds. I mean, m you know, maybe going back to like World War Two with the, the Jedbergs, you know, uh, 
the uh, they were working for the predecessor of the CIA at the time, and and yes, you know they were jumping into France right uh, behind enemy lines, uh, you know setting up resistance movements and and basically conducting guerrilla warfare. And and I mean, just when I think about the, the sort of odds that you guys were up against, I mean, you know, I, I could think of very few instances where American servicemen and women face those kind of odds. And, and, you know, going back to World War II is something that I can think of. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what you guys are doing is absolutely incredible. And, uh, um, you know, I would like to get into some of that. Can we just sort of rewind a little bit? And um, yeah, it's your show. I'm with you all the way. You just, you just say jump and I'll ask how high. <laughs> can we talk about uh, sort of your your introduction into the army and, and kind of a little bit of how that was for you getting into special forces and then into SOC. In uh, 1964, I graduated from high school and during that summer, the newspapers carried a story about uh, an American soldier who was in a unit called the green berets. And right about that time, the song, the battle of the green berets was out. And um, that was Roger Donlan, who was, later that year was awarded the first Medal of Honor by anybody in the Vietnam War. So it was the first Green Beret as well as the first Medal of Honor awarded. And uh, but, you know, we read about it in the paper and went about our merry way. So it took me two years to flunk out of college, went to um, uh, after that, I went and enlisted because we knew that we were going to get drafted. Back then in 1966, the draft was still on. And I read the book, The Green Berets, and I said, you know, if I go to Vietnam, I want to go with these guys if I can qualify. So um, enlisted, went through basic training, Fort Dix, uh, from there to advanced infantry training at uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia. And during that eight week of training, um, there was an opportunity to volunteer for special forces. And they ran you through a series of battery of tests, uh, written psychological profiles, interview, you had to run, swim, do pull-ups, you know, the usual physical stuff. And, um, and then right before we graduated from AIT, he called anybody in who had uh, volunteered and we were notified that we had qualified. So right from AIT, we went to jump school for three weeks up at Fort Benning, Georgia. And then on a Friday night, on a Friday afternoon, we graduated, got on a bus, went to Fort Bragg, and went right into Special Forces training. And at that time, it was a new program, which they, off the record, they called it the Baby SF. Because prior to that, Special Forces, you had to have Five or ten years, you had to be at least an E5 or an E6 with uh, time in the Army. But they needed bodies, and they came up with the Baby SF program, which I was a part of, myself and a lot of other guys. A lot of the men in SOG were young guys like that that came through the, ba uh, the Baby SF program. So after that, we went to Bragg. Seven months later, we had a... My uh, military occupation was at Camo, doing Morse code, and we graduated in December. Before we went to Vietnam, because we were in Camo, we had a three more months of training on radio teletype. 
and then we went to Vietnam, did in-country training, and at the end of it, a little sergeant came out and said, we're looking for volunteers for a project. Well, at that time, the movie, The Green Berets, were out. In fact, we saw the movie, The Green Berets, with John Wayne when we were in the Trang. And we're all sitting there going, project? And Johnny McIntyre, my buddy, goes, what, uh, what's the project? And the sergeant goes, either you're in or you're out. <laughs> <laughs> so we volunteered. And, you know, welcome to the secret war. The next day, we were up in Da Nang, and um, we got the briefing. The one that I was talking about a little earlier where I uh, met Mike Byard for the first time in several years. And, um, you know, in our case, we had been going through training for so long, John, that when we went into that briefing, we all pulled our pads and pencils out, right? Just like, hey, we're students here. Here's another briefing. Let's take some good notes. Right. And the first thing the sergeant major says, put that shit away. <laughs> this is a top secret briefing. In front of you is a document. And this program, you have to sign it. And you're basically, you're agreeing. You will talk to no one about this program that we're going to enter. You can't do it for 20 years. If you do, you'll be federally prosecuted. You know, welcome to the Secret War. So Johnny Mack and some of our buddies, we all signed up right there. And then after you signed it, and the Sergeant Mayor said, if anybody doesn't want it, you can leave. Well, all of us stayed. We signed up. And then he pulled a, um, a blanket or some kind of a, a rug off of the map. And there was the map of Southeast Asia. South Vietnam was on the right. And then Laos and Cambodia had all these boxes, and they were targets. And they said, welcome to the secret war. And this is what we do here. We go across the fence, and we monitor enemy activity. It's a dangerous job, but this is what you volunteered for. And then we got the briefing and talked about what we're up against. So from that point, um, did you immediately ship out to your team? Yeah, two days, uh, actually it was two days later, Johnny Mack and I, we flew north with a, another SF guy. And uh, John and I, we went up to FOB1 as that Fubai. And we got off the, uh, and uh, another little sidebar, we were flown by the South Vietnamese Air Force. Now, and all of our training had been with UEs. And anything we saw, pictures in newspapers, Back east, it was like Yui's because the Yui had a great presence in Vietnam. And, uh, but we got on the old H 34, Sikorsky H 34, flown from Da Nang after our briefing up north to Fubai. And, uh, it's like, whoa, this is, this is different. Well, we got off the helicopter at Fubai, a recon team got on. And they disappeared and never been heard from again. So this was May 20th or 21st, 1968. And that was Spike Team Idaho. Glenn Lane was the team leader. Robert Owen was the assistant team leader. And they had six or uh, four or six indigenous troops from the team with them. And they remained amongst the 50 Green Berets that are still missing in action today from the secret war in Laos alone. So that, um, and, and a situation like that, where an entire team goes missing, that wasn't exactly a rare occurrence. 
1968, tragically, it was not. Because um, when I got there in May, we had at least three or four teams that had been wiped out from either FOB1 or FOB4. And we had teams like on, May, on March 28th, we had uh, STS was wiped out. The next day, another team, uh, the 1-0 was killed. And then a few days later, with ST Alaska, the entire team was wiped out except for the team leader, John Allen, who wow. escaped and evaded for a few days, and he was picked up. And, of course, this is May 68, which, you know, we had Roy Benavides um, with all the and – and he went in on a MACV SOG mission in Cambodia. And the people he went in there was a, to help them was one of the recon teams out of, uh, I think it was Bami Tuat, which was FOB5 at the time. And there were several other teams that had either been completely decimated or several of the Americans had been killed in action. And uh, the North Vietnamese Army was really getting us act together. And we had heard reports that they had sappers, men that were trained just to track our teams and to hit it. And then they killed just the Americans. And uh, so it was jarring. I mean, to come into camp and have a team disappear, that's how I got my job. A team got wiped out. Welcome to the secret war. So I know um, if I can remember correctly, Mike Stahl, who was at CCN, he was the one zero of recon team Michigan, but I mean, we, we had the last time I podcasted with Mike was probably like two years ago, maybe three, but I, if I think I remember him saying that, uh, he didn't have much experience when he became the one zero, uh, they were just losing guys so frequently that they, they needed a, you know, an American in the, the team leader position. And, uh, and that's kind of how he got his, uh, his one zero slot before he was then wounded and, and, uh, you know, medevac out of Vietnam. Um, right. So when you, uh, you were on recon team Idaho, right? Correct. Yes, sir. Uh huh. And were you, uh, did you go into the team as a one zero or? Oh, no, no, I was very fortunate. Um, with, uh, a few days prior to that mission, and prior to my arrival at FOB1, uh, one of the team members on Idaho was Robert J. Spider Parks. Mm. And he uh, had performed so well with Idaho that the 1-0, the team leader, Glenn Lane, uh, told the S3 that Spider was time to get his own recon team. So he was taken off Idaho administratively set up to get a new recon team. So he was in the middle of this transfer when uh, Idaho went out and disappeared. So because of his experience, he came back, he took over as the one zero, but he'd had um, several missions with uh, Sergeant Lane, who was the one zero and he had experience. He knew the team. So he was the new team leader. And then he worked with Sal who was our Vietnamese counterpart on the recon team. And so Sal went out and they hired uh, several new 
uh, young men. Three of them were 15 years old who came on the team. And then Don Wolken, who had been in country for a few months, came on as the assistant team leader. And because I was green as grass, I was the radio operator. And I knew Spider. We had gone through training group together. We were an A company, a training group back in 1967. We, and I was on a softball team with him. So we knew each other from there. And I highly respected him because uh, of his leadership skills. And he was just, uh, you know, the, uh, the epitome of the quiet uh, professional. So when you guys were uh, running Recon, were you with Mountain Yards or were you with South Vietnamese Special Forces? Oh, no. Our team was was all South Vietnamese. Okay. Three or four of the uh, South Vietnamese had come south in 1954 after Dien Bien Phu fell. That was the last French battle. The communists ousted the French. And... There was an opportunity for 18 months for people in the north could go south. Anybody in the south could go north if they wanted. Well, nobody went north because they knew about communism. But many thousands of people came south. Amongst them were several of the men that were on uh, our team with Idaho. And so um, Sal, they were all south Vietnamese. Uh, New Yonvan Sal was the, our counterpart. And uh, he was the team leader. He had been running missions for over two years by the time I met him on Idaho. So he was highly respected. He was just so savvy. He had jungle instincts. He could smell the enemy before any of us. And uh, he just, he was great. He trained. So we went into training. We had to train myself and Wolken to all the SOPs as well as the young Vietnamese. A lot of time on the range. And uh, then we did a few night ambushes, had a couple of practice missions. And then we finally had a real target in August where we inserted um, Air Force sensors in the in the uh, Ashaw Valley along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, one of the major trails that went through the valley. And then we had another mission like that, but Quezon put those in and... Um, and then in October, we had a mission the day after, a couple of days after Lynn Black with ST Alabama came up against 10,000 NVA troops, nine-man team versus 10,000. And six of our guys came home. And then we were inserted uh, the very next day, October the 6th. And then we were engaged in a firefight for about four hours on the 7th. And then finally got extracted by a king bee. And uh, after that mission, I became the uh, one zero. Don Wolken got promoted to a uh, cubby rider. And that would be a fact, a forward air controller. And the way we worked at in SOG, the Air Force had the pilot, and we would get an experienced Green Beret riding with him so he could communicate with the team on the ground. And So they would, the, they would essentially be over you guys in the air? Yes, yes. Once... Like if we, they would do daily combo checks once you're on the ground. And then once you made enemy contact, that would be our link to tactical air for fast movers, helicopters, gunships, spads, you know, the old F1, the old A1 Sky Raiders. So you, um, you mentioned a few things that I wanted to touch on. So you 
the first thing you mentioned uh, that you guys had a couple practice ambushes. Were you guys actually going out and getting into contact with the enemy? Our both both of the uh, night ambushes we set up, we had no customers. Uh, we did it um, outside of a village that was next to our compound, and by that time, so this is June of '68. We're four months past the Tet Offensive, and there was a follow-up, a secondary, what they called a second Tet Offensive, which they they tried to get, to do some more havoc, but um, at our level we didn't see much effect from it, but we had our South Vietnamese who let the local villagers know that after 10 o'clock, don't go down these trails. Cause if you do, you're going to die. And, uh, other teams had run some ambushes and they did have minor enemy contact. But in our case, we were out there all night, but it gave us a chance to get on the ground, you know, practice the night, uh, setting up security perimeters, uh, rotating the watch, make sure somebody's always awake. Your basic SOPs for when you're on the ground and when you're across the fence. So you also mentioned um, putting in sensors uh, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail was a, a huge stretch where essentially the North Vietnamese were using to move supplies, I think, up and down. Supplies, supplies, uh, equipment, and manpower, weapons, anti-aircraft weaponry, and then, uh, yes, so the Ho Chi Minh Trail was not just one trail. There was a major road, but and it came from North Vietnam, south, went across the DMZ, and then into Laos. Hmm. And then it came down Laos into Cambodia, and then there were fingers off of that trail because the Air Force would bomb it. When our teams were in on the ground, they would spot traffic and then they would direct airstrikes against enemy traffic, enemy troops. And of course the enemy had a spy network set up and observation posts. And we didn't realize it at the time, but they also had a spy in MACVSOG headquarters so that uh, when teams launched, um, sometimes they knew they knew we were coming. And uh, so that that was part of uh, our daily challenge, just to get on the ground sometimes. And did they ever figure out who it was, who was spying? Yeah, after the war, there was uh, one of our guys, John Plaster, who... John had three tours of duty, all of them in, in Contum at FOB2, later it became CCC. And he wrote a book, and he, uh, several books. And well, one was the pictorial, a huge uh, coffee table table book. And uh, there's a picture of a, of a gentleman from uh, North Vietnam who was with one of our majors, Major George Speedy Gaspard. And their picture was in Saigon. And this, and this guy got the award from the North Vietnamese government, the top award given for his years of being a spy in MACV SOG headquarters. Wow. But nobody realized it at the time. Yeah, there were, um, 
you know, reading through the SOG books, uh, there were several instances where a lot of, uh, and I believe yourself included, guys were talking about uh, how difficult it was sometimes to even get inserted. Uh, I think Mike Stahl said the first, you know, three or four missions that he ran uh, in CCN, they were shot off the LZ, like they couldn't even get in. And so was all of that a result of the spying or was that the spying plus they kind of uh, got hip to the, the insertion tactics? I, John, I think part of that was, yes, part of it was because of the spying that they they would set up observation posts. So they knew uh, because of the, the jungle was triple canopy there were limited LZs or limited locations from previous bombings. Like a few times we would get inserted into a target where it would be a bomb crater. So it would be new, fresh, and maybe we'd hope that they wouldn't have an observation people there. But uh, we were told that when our helicopters took off from Vietnam, an alert went to enemy troops in Laos. And then when we crossed a fence into Laos, that there are some observation posts along the way. And they would say, here come the helicopters. This is their azimuth. And that would aid the North Vietnamese because by in 1968, there were 25 to 30,000 NVA troops stationed in Laos. They were coming down the trail, keeping the trail open. Their job was to find us, to hunt us down, to get us out so they could continue moving supplies and manpower south. And, um, and like Mike's case, we had the same thing. I mean, there was a period in, in November 68 where we would go in the morning, get shot out of a primary, secondary, alternate LZs, go back, have lunch, get a new target. Same, same, that same afternoon, go to another target, get shot out. And you, the helicopter arrived, you'd be 40, 50 minutes to the target. You get a little lethargic, and then all of a sudden you're spiraling into the LZ, and then all of a sudden you're getting shot at. And it could be anything from an enemy sniper to ground troops to anti-aircraft fire. And on one occasion, as we were going in to an LZ, uh, I think it was Sal, yelled to the door gunner. Again, we're being inserted by the South Vietnamese Air Force, the uh, 219 Special Operations Squadron. And they were just outstanding, courageous pilots. And Sal yelled to the door gunner, who was Vietnamese, and he warned the pilot, and the pilot ceased descending and pulled out of the target. And what had happened was Sal saw a wire how he saw it, I don't know. But he saw a wire across the LZ. And we learned a few minutes after he saw that and we pulled out that that wire was attached to a 500-pound bomb. Wow. Had we hit it, that bomb would have gone off. And we would have been finita. We would have been fertilizer and layoffs. That's crazy. And for them to have that kind of time to put that together just gives you a little bit of a sense of what we're up against in terms of just, just being able to get in and get on the ground, like Mike said. Right. So you mentioned that, uh, I think you said on your third mission was when you got into a, you were in a gunfight for a couple of hours. Um, 
Yeah, that was our for me and uh, our team. Don on that mission. Don was the one zero. I was the assistant team leader and the radio operator. And uh, we we got inserted October sixth. Uh, it was a clean insert. We were on the ground for a few hours before the trackers started uh, closing in, and by dark when we set up our RON, the rest overnight location. That one of the trackers had gotten fairly close to us, and when he fired his weapon. We were amazed at how close they were. In the morning, at first light, we were out of there. Um, we moved through the jungle for the entire morning, and when we moved, we always moved ten and ten. We moved for ten minutes, wait for ten minutes just to hear the jungle, get the jungle sounds, and. Um, because those those sounds could be an indicator uh, to what's going on in the jungle. And um, around about one 1.30 or so, we had broken out of the jungle. We were right at the end of a, of a severe mountain face, and we got out of the jungle just to go up the mountain to get to higher elevation. And at one point, Sal and I were at the back of the formation, and Sal hissed. I turned around, and he pointed to two NVA soldiers that were maybe 150, 200 yards back. And they were looking at us, and they were standing there at port arms. They, they weren't threatening us. And, you know, I'd never seen anything like it, to see an enemy troop not shooting at you. So I told Don... We went to a hilltop, set up a perimeter. They hit us around two o'clock. And fortunately, it was a small enough hill where um, they couldn't overrun us in a mass, and there was triple canopy jungle. And Sal and Hep, uh, our interpreter, opened fire when the enemy was close. And we, we were engaged in a heavy firefight. I couldn't make any radio contact. We couldn't get any help for over two hours. So we were there. They would come at us wave after wave. And then we got the, uh, finally uh, made contact with Spider Parks, who was flying Covey then. And we began doing, uh, using tactical air, A1 Sky Raiders with napalm, some bombing runs, gun runs. Some fast movers came in with gun runs. And then we had helicopter gunships, the uh, Scarface from the Marine Corps as well as the muskets from the 176th out of AmeriCal Division. And we were engaged, um, and this is where maybe about the three-hour mark, I forget, two- or three-hour mark, Don Wolken crawled over to me and pointed to the jungle and said, can you believe that? Look at what they're doing there. And at first I couldn't see it. But what had happened was we had killed so many soldiers, enemy soldiers, that they were stacking up the bodies of their dead soldiers so they could try to climb up over the dead soldiers to get a better angle to shoot at us. That's crazy. Oh, it's totally insane. But that's also an indication of what we were up against. And uh, so by the end of the the day, um, a King Bee came in, a South Vietnamese Air Force helicopter came in and hovered for 10 minutes and by the time we got to it and got on the helicopter, I was down to my last magazine, last hand grenade. Wow. And uh, 
Captain Tin pulled us out. And so that was major conflict for over four hours. And uh, so for me, that was the uh, indoctrination under fire. Welcome to the war. How old were you at the time? Uh, this is 68, 22. Wow. Wow. And so you said you were down to your last magazine. Um, what... You know, what was your kit like uh, going into that operation or in, in all of your operations? Yeah, for whenever we ran missions, we always carried 600 plus rounds for the car 15, which was a modified M16. And then we carried 10 to 12 rounds for an M79 grenade launcher, a 40 millimeter grenade launcher. And then I carried a radio and then an extra battery for the radio. And, of course, hand grenades, 10 to 12 hand grenades, smoke grenades, and then um, uh, a f- you know, some rations and uh, a few other items of comfort, like a, a sweater to wear during the night because it would get chilly in the jungle at night. And we had a small uh, rain jacket that uh, was a plastic uh, waist-length um, rain jacket with a hood. But uh, if you wore it, if you wore it, <laughs> it was so short that when it rained, the water would come down the rain jacket into your pants. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, a rain shirt. Yeah, yeah. It was just a very thin plastic uh, rain jacket with a hood on it, and it was only just like I said, it just went down to the waist. <laughs> okay, and um, from my understanding, the. Uh how big were your were your clips of the ammunition? It, it wasn't very big in those car 15s, right? No. Well, the, back then, we only had 20-round magazines, and right. we only put 18 right. rounds in them because we were told uh, that if you put more than 18, the springs might be uh, overly compressed. And there, and there were apparently there were other recon teams that had some members that had troubles with the magazines. They put too many rounds in them. So to be safe... We tried to maximize their use. And so we put 18 rounds in, and then we carried, you know, enough magazines, like maybe 30 plus, and then we had extra ammo. But uh, whatever, 18 to get it over six 600 rounds, that's what it was. That's crazy. So 30 magazines. So we, you just kept them, like, on your uh, your chest rig or well, we we didn't have the we didn't have the chest rig like the contemporary uh, uh, soldiers do. Um, the the harness that we preferred was the old BAR harness, where you had pouches, and you could put four magazines in face down and one on top, mm. so that when a firefight came, there were the front two pouches that would be ten magazines right there, and then another pouch with magazines, then one for water. And then one for hand grenades, another for the M79 rounds, because, um, you know, the M79 gave us a lot of extra firepower right. when we made contact with the enemy. So that was a, a wonderful little weapon. And we cut it down. We sawed it down to its minimum length, but it was still effective. Right. So um, sort of just... You mentioned earlier uh, that you guys had placed these trackers for the Air Force along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. What exactly was the purpose of that? 
there were sensors, and there was a it was a three 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 sectional uh, sensor. The uh, central part. There would be a central part that was, I call it the brains. I don't know what I'm talking about here because on that mission, I just did security. But I believe the central part was the central, was the central nervous system for that system. So you had to dig a hole, put it in the ground, and then there were coaxial cables that went to the left and to the right, 20, 25 feet or so. And then we had to put those in the ground as well as try to camouflage the cable so that no one could see it from the road. So uh, we inserted it. Well, I didn't, but they, the, the team members inserted Spider Parks. And we had Les Daniels with us on that mission from um, Spike Team Rhode Island. And he was a veteran. He had inserted others before. And um, we inserted him. It was like oh, we were on the ground two or three, four hours. And then we left. And then we did it again. Um, up in Quezon, and we did the same thing along Highway 9. We went in, inserted the device, and the purpose of those devices was to monitor any traffic so that anything that came down that trail that went past those sensors is sent an electronic signal to the Air Force. And the Air Force had airborne command centers that were operational and in the air 24 hours a day and they would fly over all of Southeast Asia and somehow they would come back and tap the data that was in there. So it could detect the difference between an animal, uh, a truck and a tank and people. So it would be able to send information back to the air force and they get the reports from those sensors. And there are other sensors that they inserted, but I never saw those. I only read about them like everybody else that the Air Force had inserted. And would they use those like for to go on bombing runs and things like that? Yes, and particularly if they saw heavy troop movement. And they would um, then come back and verify or try to find the troop movement because they, like uh, in Laos, part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, if you flew over, you couldn't tell there was a trail there. Because the North Vietnamese forced the local people to work with them to work at covering the trails. They would pull over the tree branches and their trucks would come down. They would have fresh uh, camouflage on the trucks so that planes flying overhead wouldn't readily see a truck sticking out in the jungle. Um, but if you know the, uh, the facts would fly low. And after a report like that off of the sensor, the facts would go out, locate what had gone past, and then if they could confirm it, then they would direct airstrikes on the troops or whatever was going south. You ran these type of missions. You guys inserted these sensors. Um, what were some of the objectives on other operations? Like, uh, were you guys doing... Um, you know, prisoners, not, were you trying to uh, get like a North Vietnamese soldier? Uh, you know, what were some of the things you guys were doing? Well, yeah, um, we had permission to abort any mission if we had an opportunity to capture a live soldier. And one of the uh, tactics that we worked on um, was setting up 
an ambush where are you familiar with claymore mines yes okay we would have a two claymore mines it would be a kill zone so the claymore mines would be faced in opposite directions and then in the middle there would be a piece of c4 and one of our guys lynn black had refined that block of plastic explosive where if it was six feet away from the trail it was enough explosive power in that block of C4 to knock out an enemy soldier. Everybody else in that formation walking past would be killed by the claymores and our gunfire. And that was a tactic that we practiced, you know, getting set up, going in, putting in the claymores that would be there for the ambush, then your security claymores, on either side, right and left, and then one behind the team in the event that enemy troops tried to get to the team from the rear. And these would be um, there for our security. But we practiced it over and over again, and um, that was one of our missions. Others were a wiretap. Sometimes there would be an area reconnaissance just to go in and see what's going on. Because we, you know, sometimes the Air Force and even the uh, security agencies uh, lost track. Like one of our missions in December 1968, I mean, November of 68, our six-man recon team, the mission was to find three NVA divisions. The first, the third, and the seventh had disappeared, Mm. literally disappeared in the eyes of the intelligence community. Neither the CIA, the DIA, or the Air Force knew where those divisions were. 30,000 is a lot of troops. Right. Each each division was 30,000. Say again? Each division was 30,000? No, that was a total. 10,000 for each division. Okay. So first, the third, the seventh. The night before we went on the ground, um, we studied a lot of the reports, last sightings, uh, hypotheses, where they might be. We picked an LZ after reviewing that. I mean, we were up late at night going over all the reports. There were some photographs. Um, and that next day was Thanksgiving. And so the base commander, we were TDY down south at a base as FOB 6, and it was Honuk Tau. And um, the commander said, you know, t- tomorrow's going to be Thanksgiving. He says, this mission is, is really important. It's dangerous. But before you go in the field, I'm going to get you guys a, a Thanksgiving dinner. Nice. No, yeah, real nice. So we went out, had our Thanksgiving dinner, inserted into the target. We were on the ground for a few hours maybe, and we literally walked into a base camp. We could see the fires, uh, a couple of fires burning. There was smoke coming up, and uh, we were in Cambodia now. And um, afterwards, we figured out that we had walked into a base camp where one division had just left and another division was moving in. And they heard had heard the helicopters and they had been looking for us. Well, somehow they found us looking for them. And at one point, we found a base camp. We took some pictures and Sal just gave us the warning, said, Buku VC, they're coming. 
And in Cambodia, it wasn't triple canopy. You could see for over 100 yards, some, some places 200 yards, there'd be trees, grass, but you could see. And one of the sites we saw, the first thing we saw was uh, uh, NVA soldiers in uniform running at port arms into that base camp, and they were coming eventually towards us. And uh, another NVA unit came from the south that came in, and they too were running. And somebody had spotted us. Anyways, they came at us hard, and we went back to the LZ. We used the Claymore mines to slow them down. We even put down Claymore mines with a five-second fuse so that would delay the enemy. And, of course, we're, we're engaging them with our rotating uh, security uh, with a uh, contingency drill, the one man shooting, the next guy shooting, falling back. Uh, we got the gunships in from the uh, Green Hornets, the 20 SOS, and they provided deadly gunfire that allowed us enough time to get to the LZ. And when we were finally on the LZ, we had claymores out, blew a couple more, jumped in and just barely escaped by the skin of our teeth. And um, went back to the uh, Air Force base. And uh, the uh, Air Force guy said, hey, man, come on, have Thanksgiving dinner with us. So we went over and had Thanksgiving dinner again. Nice. And then the uh, one of the guys came out and said, hey, the CO wants to talk to you back at base. So he flew back to base did a full uh, debrief, and at the end of it, the, the colonel was very happy with uh, our results that day. And he said, hey, let's go to dinner. Come on. So we had another <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner that night. <laughs> Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about today's sponsor. Against the Odds is Wondery's new original series, which walks you through the remarkable events of July 2018 in the Tham Luang Cave Complex in northern Thailand. Twelve teenage boys and their soccer coats were exploring the caves when it began to flood. Completely cut off from the outside world, they were forced to retreat deeper into the cave complex. This set off a chain of events that led to an American Air Force Special Operations search and rescue team arriving to assist with the rescue. The Royal Thai Army Special Forces Regiment and the Royal Thai Navy SEALs had already begun search and rescue operations. Retired Thai Navy SEAL Suman Kunan volunteered to support the rescue efforts. Unfortunately, he died in a cave due to dive complications during the rescue. Rick Stanton, a British civilian diver, is one of the world's most accomplished cave divers and played a vital role in this rescue. I love hearing stories about the human spirit, and I am amazed at the specialists from around the world who dropped everything to go to Thailand and save lives. The courage shown by the special operators who put their lives on the line to rescue these boys is nothing short of remarkable. Against the Odds captures all of this and more. Rest in peace, Thai Navy SEAL Suman Kunan. Against the Odds is available now on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast. Start your free trial of Wondery Plus and the Wondery app to listen ad-free. With Against the Odds, feel the suspense. Wondery, feel the story. You had mentioned uh, you were talking about Sal, the, your South Vietnamese counterpart. Uh, you had mentioned how he was able to smell the enemy before anyone else could. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. On that, like for example, that mission right there, Thanksgiving '68. Um, 
And the one from October 7th, when we made that enemy contact in those firefights, Sal somehow either could smell or sense or feel the enemy presence. He had been running these missions so long. He knew the jungle so well that his intuitive senses were just, you know, echelons far ahead of anything I could do. And I never doubted Sal. When Sal said Buku VC, meaning he sensed them that they were near and that things were going to get real hairy real quick. And his eyes would widen. And the closer the NVA were, the more of them they were, the bigger his eyes would be. And like on that target from October 7th and Thanksgiving, his eyes were like, like saucers. <laughs> and I had learned from experience that when Sal's eyes are like that, it's time to listen and get on the radio and get some tack air in there because we were going to make contact. And he was always right. And uh, so he just had these, these great instincts. He, nobody else on our team was as good as him. So many other people on our team, Foot became good like that. And then we had another member of a team that came on later, Doti Kwong, and their instincts in the jungle. They just were light years ahead of us. I mean, I was a city slicker from Trenton, New Jersey. Right. But these guys, they grew up there. They knew the jungle. And that's why they ran point, not me, the South Vietnamese. I'm alive today thanks to our, our South Vietnamese team members. They are just outstanding, fearless fighters. Yeah, I think that's a common uh, theme among SOG veterans, or at least the uh, the SOG books that are available, where, uh, you know, the, the guys, the Special Forces guys are talking about how incredible the South Vietnamese counterparts were, or the Montagnards. Um, and, uh, and one thing, <clears throat> you know, reading these SOG books that, you know, I'd never been to a jungle before, but... Uh, you know, once you mentioned the the smell part, that sort of just uh, lit up in my brain. It was like you you can actually smell the enemy before you see them, which is, I mean, for someone who's never been to a jungle before, that wouldn't even like I wouldn't even think that that's even possible. Well, I didn't think it was possible either, right? <laughs> Until I saw Sal do it and save our bacon. Had he not been that extra alert to give us that two or three second edge when when the firefight would start. And so when the firefight would start, he would be the first one to open fire on the enemy. And we never walked into an ambush with our team because we stayed in the jungle most of the time. And we were careful that way. And again, it was with Sal's leadership, his skill set was just, you know, absolutely amazing. Another thing that sort of stood out to me, I mean, even just from the story you told about your Thanksgiving that day, you know, you're running operations. Um, you guys would, if you're in a situation where you're calling in for air support, uh, you know, whether that's jets or gunships, helicopter gunships, whatever it may be, it seemed to me like the guys you were fighting, they would get hit. And then just continue to fight. Like there wasn't any point where they're like, 
oh, maybe we shouldn't keep fighting because we're just getting bomb dropped on us. Uh, so in, in, in many ways, they seem to be a formidable enemy. Well, they were, John. There's no question about it. And uh, the other thing, like when they knew that they were getting bombed, they had what they called getting close to the belt. Right. And what that meant was getting close to my belt because they knew the closer they were to us, the less chance they had of being injured by the ordinance that was being dropped on them by our tactical error. And so we would call it an airstrike. They would hear the A1 Sky Raider or they'd hear the gunships coming. They would then rush us. That's crazy. And that day, October 7th, it happened time after time. So there's that little death dance going on where they hear the A1 coming, they come at us, and we knew they were coming at us. And on one hand, the A1 say, put your head down, coming in close with the ordinance, danger close. And here comes the NVA. And, uh, yeah, they were fearless. I mean, they earned our respect the hard way. That's for sure, John. Right. So did you guys uh, run any operations where you actually grabbed somebody off the battlefield? No, we were very close on a couple of occasions. And we had a team out of Contoon where one of our uh, SOG legends, Dick Meadows, Mm -hmm. he picked up 12 or 13 POWs during his time as a recon team leader. Wow. Running out of con, yeah, that is the all-time mark. He had it down tight, and he was just remarkably fearless, um, of legend. And um, a couple times we were all set up, but then because of the tactical situation or weather closing in, we had to pull back the ambush, and then, uh, you know, run and hide wait until the weather cleared up because when you're on the ground, you don't want to make enemy contact with bad weather because there's no tack error whatsoever. Right. Yeah. I remember, uh, I don't remember if it was in your book or someone else's, but I remember uh, just reading about instances where guys were on the ground and they got into a contact and because the weather was bad, they couldn't get any air support. And, and basically they were, you know, running and fighting, if I can remember correctly, even for two or three days before they were able to get some kind of air support. Right. Some teams had that. And like in our case, the the one that I wrote about um, and across the fence was where we had an ambush set up as perfect. They didn't know we were there. And we, we had that perfect ambush tactic in. We were also conducting a wiretap at the time on the NVA phone lines. And, um, when we did a wiretap, when we were done, we would turn over the cassettes to the uh, CIA, and then the CIA would amplify those tapes because the NVA phone lines, uh, unlike American phones, when they put the phone back in the cradle, the phone was still alive. And so we would always tape anything. Anytime we came to a wire, we would pull a wiretap on it. Because the CIA said they could get it and amplify it a hundred times. And then they could listen to the tape and hear what people were saying in the mm. background. So we had that wiretap going 
I gave the uh, spider was spider parks was flying cubby that day. And I gave him the code saying, we got a POW. We got, we'll have one here. Uh, we'll meet you back at the LZ in two, an hour or two hours. And he said, don't move. I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see the mountain you're on, let alone anything else. Wow. Yeah. And that's when, uh, things got pretty hairy. We then had to move out. We moved into the night and that was a night that one of the soldiers crawled up and, uh, touched my jungle boot in the jungle. Jeez. Can you tell that story? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we had, uh, after spider told us to pull down the ambush, um, because prior to that, we got across the trail, set up the ambush, the NVA were just diddy bopping down the trail. They didn't know we were there. We were taking pictures. Um, we saw a couple of officers that we would have liked to have captured. But you don't, you don't trigger an ambush until you know the air assets can come take you home with the POW. Right. And so in this case, Spider said, hey, I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see the mountain. So he pulled it down. We moved the, uh, through the jungle into the night. We came to a stream, and the stream had banks on each side, you know, 10, 15 feet on each side. And we walked in this stream for at night for maybe a half hour, 45 minutes. I forget how long now. And we put out false trails, and then we also put out mace, uh, powdered mace and black pepper because they were coming at us with dogs and Sal had climbed a tree and said there were hundreds of NVAs coming up the mountain looking for us, searching with the lanterns and the dogs. So uh, that's why we moved extra and went into the stream to try to confuse the dogs. So finally we moved up this bank, the team set up a perimeter and I was facing the bank and about two o'clock in the morning, two NVA soldiers were in that stream bed and they walked past us and their lantern ran out of fuel. They turned around and came back. And when they went past us, Hep, my interpreter, coughed. And uh, so the soldier, he was good. He only moved when the wind blew, but he crawled up that bank. And at one point he touched my boot and I heard his voice, not his voice, but he caught his breath. And I, had, I was sitting there with my car 15 pointed right at him. So we had to be less than two feet, three feet apart. But he didn't move. And he waited until the wind blew. He would only move when the, when the wind was blowing the leaves. So he went back down, got his partner, and left. And so at first light, we got out of there. And then we moved all day up the mountain to get to a safe location until the weather changed. And did you write a, you said that was in your book, right? That story? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yeah, cause I, I remember, I distinctly remember um, you describing how you guys saw the lanterns. Uh, and I, I guess, you know, at night. And uh, and just for uh, for the audience listening, the reason you didn't fire at him was probably because you couldn't see him, right? Well, yeah, and they were hunting for us. If you fired a gunshot. Right. Give, it, give yourself that away. Would, that would, yeah. So uh, we didn't for tactical reasons. And 
if he had moved quickly, he would have been dead, but he didn't. And uh, thankfully, he backed down the hill, and we uh, we moved out onto in the first light, and we moved all day, and we were able to um, to get to the top of the mountain that night, where we had another twilight zone experience, where maybe midnight, one o'clock in the morning, we heard uh, an aircraft fly over. And, the, and we could see a couple mountains away. The mountains lit up like Broadway with the lights. And it turned out that the Russians were coming in with an aerial resupply to their people that were on the ground. And we could hear them talking Russian uh, on the radio frequency. So I went to all our tactical frequencies trying to get the night airborne command ship but with no luck. But um, but again, you just you know, all in one mission. We had an ambush set up, get touched by the NVA, and then <laughs> the second night we're out there, here comes the Russians resupplying enemy enemy troops with an airdrop. Right, and the the Russians were basically supporting the North Vietnamese. Yeah, they were the biggest supplier of the North Vietnamese. Without Russia, uh, the Communist Bloc, and China. Um, Vietnam wouldn't have been able to go on with the war because they, they got their war supplies from them. Right. Uh, and, you know, just reading about Vietnam, um, I think this is from a, a guy who was an infantry guy, not even not special forces or anything, but they had talked about how they had seen Chinese military in the field. I don't know if they were working as advisors or, or you know, on what capacity they were there, but. Um. Yeah, because the, the Russians and the Chinese always denied it. And then, of course, you know, the reason why there was a secret war was that our government and, and the North Vietnamese, Laos and Cambodia governments all agreed not to have combat troops in Laos or Cambodia. So the, our U.S. Uh, ambassadors ordered the military to get out because we had made that agreement. The North Vietnamese said, yeah, we agree. We will not have troops there. Well, the North Vietnamese had begun working on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, reopening it as far back as 1957. By 1959, the political, um, the Borough, whatever the, lead command group was of communists in North Vietnam, they, they made a group called 559 to be in charge of maintaining the Ho Chi Minh Trail and to deal with getting supplies and troops south as well as combating any, any enemy like us in the field. And it was 559 because it was May 1959 when they gave that official designation to that unit. And um, that's what we were up against uh, during the entire secret war. So there was a, this was something that uh, I'd read it and then I'd copied this particular bit and had posted on social media before. Um, and it was written by Lynn Black. I can't remember if this is from his book or... Um, or where exactly I got it from. I think it was from his book, uh, but I just wanted to read it and, and sort of get your reaction. Um, so he wrote, uh, we're too few. 
I don't have a chance and I know it. Now there's a realization when we're not on the ground training or in the club, I hate the external rating amount. I get anxious. I begin to think too much. And that's when the fear begins to creep in for me. I don't sleep well. If we're back in camp more than a week, I begin to have bad dreams. I talk in my sleep and I drink more than I should. But when we come back from a mission after making enemy contact, I sleep like a baby. It's the waiting around. It's better to just come back, take a short rest, reload, and go right back out. I think I know why men go out and take such long chances and pull off unbelievable wild feats of heroism. No training, none of the duty, honor, and country stuff makes us do what we do on our own accord. I know now what a brave man is. I know now how men laugh at death and welcome it. It takes a brave man to even experience real fear. A coward can't last long enough at the job to get to that stage. Uh, when I read that, it, that just like, it was so profound to me. I thought this is, you know, this is a guy who's seen a lot of combat and, and this is sort of his honest uh, take on some of that. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, I, you know, Lynn has some, I think that was from his book, WTF, Whiskey, Tango, Foxtrot. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, he had a couple of amazing, profound, deep insights into his, uh, into his psyche. Right. Because he was one hell of a soldier. Um, and, and just brilliant, a brilliant guy, a tremendous artist on top of it. Very talented artist. Um, and in my case, um, we were running, there was a period of time, like from the end of October through November through December of 68, that we were running so much that my, I had to rotate some of our uh, South Vietnamese out because they were just getting worn out from being on the ground or getting shot out of the target. You know, just being in a helicopter, knowing you're going to a mission, then you get shot out of one LZ, the primary, then the shot out of the secondary, and then the alternate. It just, it's very draining. Then you go back, have lunch, and go back and try it again at another target. Um, so we were so busy that at night, when we were in the safety of our base camp, I would I would sleep like a like a dog. I would just go to sleep. And but yet when I was in the jungle, I got to the point where in the morning the moisture of the dew falling through the trees and landing on the leaves that would wake me up. And with what Lynn was saying, I I kind of cherished a few days in between missions and okay. didn't quite build up like he did. So we were different that way. Um, because, uh, like I said, particularly in 60, I just judge everything. That was such a critical year for me, for the war and our team after having been wiped out the way we came back. Um, so it was just a major effort at all angles, you know, and um, and Lynn had this, some of his other experiences in his book, uh, how he talked about when he got knocked unconscious <laughs> during that firefight by knocked out by a hand grenade 
that was powerful enough that destroyed his car 15. Wow. And he, yeah. And he remembered uh, getting awakened by Cowboy who was kicking him and putting water in his face. Come on, Black, wake up, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> we got a water fight. <laughs> does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. And um, so then that leads me to ask another question. So, uh, so then sleeping in the jungle, you know, while you're on a mission, did you even get much sleep at all? Oh, yes, sir. Um, some guys couldn't and didn't. But um, I trusted our team so much that um, either myself or the other American would be awake at all times. But we also know our South Vietnamese, they would rotate, you know. And we would usually go two hours, and we had a watch on with a luminous dial, so we knew exactly what the time was. Then usually at midnight, we would have a combo check with the Airborne Command Center. And at night, the code name was Moonbeam, hmm. and Moonbeam would call down. And we got to the point where all we would do would be just break squelch twice. That would be our sign for a team okay. So you just basically click the uh, the talk button essentially twice? Twice. Because um, the Russians had given and trained the North Vietnamese with very good RDF, radio direction finding equipment. They could pinpoint us. And uh, so we always try to minimize any combo at all until you made contact or until it was time for extraction. And even there, you'd be careful because like in, in the classic example of how they listened, when Lynn Black was in that firefight on October 5th, the helicopter came in and Lynn popped a Keller smoke. I forget what the Keller was, maybe yellow, but the NVA popped a yellow smoke. Mm. And and the helicopter went to the NVA smoke and got shot down. Wow. Oh, yeah. So that's radio direction finding. They monitored the frequencies. And then on that mission there, they had to change the frequency several times because the enemy was coming up uh, with um, blocking the transmission on any radio transmissions on that frequency they were on. So they were constantly rotating. And then finally, uh, I think his PRC-25 got blown up. And he was just using the ERC-10, which was the ultra-high-frequency uh, emergency radio. And Lynn was, uh, Lynn Black, he was the 1-0 of Recon Team Alabama? No, well, on that mission from October 5th, the 1-0 was killed in initial contact. Hmm. Lynn was the uh, the one two on the team. Okay, and they had another team member who turned out to be a complete coward and hid. He never fired a round in anger. But uh, Lynn Black with Cowboy, Doti Kwong, and uh, three of the other team members were able to fight the enemy all day in the asshole before they finally got extracted near the end of the day. By a jolly green giant. And Cowboy was a South Vietnamese guy? It, it was Khan Doan, D-O-A-N. 
and his nickname, we all called him Cowboy. He was a nun, mm-hmm. taller than a lot of the Vietnamese, and uh, just a, a remarkable recon man and a fearless soldier. Um, they, that was part of the team where uh, 20 years later, Lynn Black talked to the enemy soldier and ambushed his team. Nowhere. And enemy soldier told him that they had inflicted 90% casualties on a division, which was 10,000 men. Wow. So between wow. the recon, the A-1 Sky Raiders, the helicopter gunships, and the fast movers, they either killed or wounded 9,000 troops in one day. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the most remarkable stories in SOG history. Wow. And did he... So did he uh, did he talk about that in his book? He did. Okay, Remarkable. yeah, so, yeah. Get a chance to go back to Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. <laughs> yeah, when you mentioned that, it just sort of clicked in my head. I'm like, I I feel like I know that. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah. Oh sure, John. Absolutely incredible. Um, so you you mentioned the during the operation with the uh, recon team Alabama, the the helicopter had gotten shot down. Had you ever been on a mission where that happened uh, while you were there on the ground? No, no. Thankfully, uh, uh, we had helicopters that got shot up really bad. Uh, some A1 Sky Raiders that got shot up. Uh, but we were fortunate that we never had to react to a down aircraft. Like on that mission with October 5th, they had uh, two South Vietnamese helicopters from the 219th. And then a Jolly Green Giant that got shot down. And then the one that actually pulled the team out was so severely damaged that after flying over a couple of hilltops, the pilot had to do an emergency landing with it. And then another helicopter came in and picked up some of the team members. And then Lynn Black and the other American, uh, the coward, um, uh, got a ride back with a... um, Cobra gunship. The Cobra has uh, in its ammo container area of the helicopter is a door that opens. And in emergencies, you can strap a person into each door. And that's how Lynn got his ride back to Da Nang was in a Cobra, strapped into the door. Wow. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Just one of the most remarkable days in SOG history. No doubt about it. You know, reading about SOG and... and being able to talk to some of you guys, uh, you know, what you guys were doing on the ground was remarkable, but also the, the helicopter pilots. I mean, these guys were flying into, you know, really dangerous situations and, and, uh, you know, really sticking their neck out to get you guys out. I mean, the, the uh, level of bravery shown by those guys was also pretty remarkable. Oh, absolutely. John. I mean, Earlier, I talked about the secret war in Laos, how there's 50 Green Berets that are still, to this day, listed as missing in action, how the 1,585 Americans who are still missing in action from the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia, 50 are Green Berets, but there's close to 100-plus aviators, helicopter pilots, uh, fast movers, Sky Raider pilots that died supporting us. And you're right. They just were incredibly fearless, great aviators. And um, 
you know, there's just this, the stories abound about their courage and, uh, they always came. They were just, it was just a remarkable part of the secret war for us. And again, to have the South Vietnamese that, you know, they saved our team so many times. I lost counts without them. I wouldn't be here. I'd be fertilizer in Southeast Asia somewhere. Yeah. Just, um, you know, I, whether it's movies or podcast or, um, you know, wh- whatever sort of medium that you get the, the information from or the content, you know, um, you've heard stories about guys in, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever it may be. And, uh, and they may be in a situation where they're outnumbered special ops guys, you know, behind enemy lines. And, um, the scenario would be so bad with you know, they're taking so much fire that the, the helicopters wouldn't even go in. Um, <laughs> but right. it's just remarkable reading about SOG and Vietnam and, always hearing about how these pilots just sort of went in almost no matter what the situation was. And it's really remarkable. Oh, absolutely, John. I mean, that's one of the, you know, that's one of those major sidebars to the secret war. I mean, um, there are so many, any of our survivors that ran missions, the first thing they'll say, we couldn't have done it without the aviators because they're the ones who came whether it was day or night, um, if they could get to us, they would. And they're just amazing courage. And you know, a lot of these guys were young warrant officers, 19, 20 years old, Crazy. flying helicopters. And uh, like on Lynn Black's mission, at one point, uh, the recon team had killed so many enemy soldiers that they built a bulwark of dead bodies. There was like dozens of dead NVA soldiers, and the recon team was hiding behind the dead bodies. That so when crazy. a wave attack would come, they would kill some more. When they ran out of bullets for their guns, then they would go to the crawl out, get an AK-47 from a dead soldier, get his ammo, and use it. Well, at one point, they were really low on ammo, and they were scrounging around for stuff, and there was a wave attack coming. Well, the young pilot... His code name was the judge and the judge came in and hovered in front of the recon team and opened up with his guns and just mowed down a a shitload of enemy soldiers and then pulled out and it gave Lin and his team enough time for cowboy and a couple of errors, Doti Kwong to go out and get ammo from the dead soldiers so they continue to battle the enemy that is crazy <laughs> oh and completely insane and the same guy uh one time they had a, a recon team that was underneath a ledge and they were trapped on both sides by the enemy and they couldn't get a helicopter to come in because above them on the ledge there was a cave and in the cave was an anti-aircraft weapon and the, and it had shot down at least one aircraft and had a withering gunfire. So the team is trapped, enemy on both sides, and the anti-aircraft is higher up the mountain in a cave. Well, the judge flew, started to fly from behind the cave, behind the mountain. He flew across the cave, turned around in midair, 
did a 180. And so when he turned around, his helicopter was facing that cave with the anti-aircraft weaponry firing. And he opened fire and wiped out the enemy troops in that cave, which then enabled gun runs to hold back the soldiers and then get a helicopter down to rescue the team on the ground, just to give you one example of, of a helicopter bravery. Uh, you know, another thing that kind of stands out to me, uh, you know, talking to you and, and uh, I had um, Dick Thompson on the podcast. He was the one zero for Recon Team Michigan. Um, and if I remember correctly from talking to Dick, I think he was like 21 when he was a one zero in Sauk. Uh You were 22 when you got there. So you guys were very young. And uh, the wars that are fought today... A lot of, I don't know the right word, but a lot of attention is on the special operations piece of it, right? Navy SEALs, yes, Green Berets, Delta Force, you name it. But one thing I know about these the special mission units, the Tier 1 guys, is the, the average age of the operators are like, you know, I think like over 30. I think the average is something like 32 years old, 33, or maybe even older. And these guys are um, career soldiers, you know. They're not they're not guys who don't know what they're getting into, you know. They they fully understand the risk and and all of that. And but basically, the SOG in Vietnam, you guys were the precursor to today's special mission units. The uh, the guy who founded Delta Force was a. Uh, he was in uh, Project Delta in Vietnam, a special forces guy. Yeah, Charlie Beckwith. Right. And then some of the other first members of Delta Force were Mac V Saw guys. So you guys were at the you know the special mission units of your day, and uh, it's just remarkable to see like you know you have a 21 year old running the most dangerous operations that Americans can run in Vietnam uh, versus today, the guys, you know, running the most dangerous operations that Americans are facing, wherever the, the battlefield is, are probably 35 years old. Or So it's such a difference in age. And I would imagine that the main reason that the difference was so big in the age gap was because of the casualty rate. And, yeah, the the um, uh, the casualty rate was was high, and um, um, we had young, we had that baby SF program at the time, right? And uh, that's where I, myself, John Walton, um, we all had dropped out of college. Lynn Black didn't finish college. In fact, Lynn went in right out of high school. He was in the one seventy third for his first tour of duty. And uh, he uh, got out of the army, then went back in to go to special forces. And uh, he had been in the 173rd first. And uh, he's uh, a lot of our guys were, were young that way, and uh, young and dumb, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and today, there's so much more experience going through the recruiting, 
And they they want guys with experience, you know. The, right. the people that have been that have gotten some combat taste through other units and they come along and they train them up for their for their unique missions and how they're going to do it. And um yeah, I mean, and of course on the other hand, the last few months I've had the, the privilege of meeting some guys that have been in Delta Force. And um, they say, no, we've done some hairy stuff. But you guys in SOG was like a different level. Yeah. I mean, of course, today's commands are so much more risk adverse. Um, they wouldn't have done it. And then I just got to tell you before we go on, it's like I knew Dick Thompson. We served together at FOB1 and CCN. And after I heard his story, particularly about the one he was trying to go on R&R and he winds up going on the mission. You heard that one, right? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think so. Well, okay. This is, After I tell you this story, I'll tell you why I feel like a wimp compared to Dick Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> to short it, he was going up to, the, to our headquarters to get his R&R papers. Mm-hmm. He, had his, he had his web gear on, his car 15, and they had a team in trouble. And the helicopters came in, and the at CCN, the helicopters were just a further at the western end of the compound. And somebody said, hey, Dick, come help us. we got to tie these ropes in. There's a team in trouble, and we got to drop the ropes down because when, when a helicopter couldn't land, they would extract the recon teams on ropes, usually 100 to 150-foot-long ropes that we dropped down. Then the recon teams hook into the rope, the helicopter lift, it, lift us up and out of the jungle and take us back to base. Right. So Dick goes down, puts his car 15 down on the runway, jumps in the helicopters, tying down the ropes, and all of a sudden the helicopter took off. <laughs> oh, so long story short, he's on a helicopter. He's the only American on it from SF. The, the uh, pilot thought he was part of the rescue team anyway they go off and so he he didn't have his car 15 he turned to the door gunner borrowed his m16 he had to repel into the target well he had no gloves when you repel you have to have gloves or you get rope burns well dick didn't have the gloves he still repelled down the rope halfway down the rope his hands are bleeding the story gets worse. He ran out of rope. Wow. The helicopter started to go up. There's no more rope. He's at the end of a 150-foot piece of rope. He then broke loose from the rope, free fell into the jungle, caught himself on tree branches after breaking two or three ribs and a couple, maybe another bone. I forget exactly what he broke. Somehow... He got to the ground with his M16, with six or seven magazines, got to the team, and went on and completed the mission. That's crazy. That is Dick Thompson. And that's why I said I feel like a wimp. I never did anything like that (laughs) compared to him. (laughs) That is crazy. Oh, yeah. Amazing man. And just another day in SOG. There are stories like that which abound. And that's why we're doing the books. That's why we do any uh, any and all podcasts. And I thank you for this opportunity to be able to share a little bit of history with your uh, with your viewership. 
Yeah, it, it's remarkable. And I, I mentioned uh, before we did this, I had mentioned when I reached out to you that I podcasted with Dick and uh, another buddy of mine named Ron Morris. And um, Ron, he was a SEAL for like, I'm forgetting, like 22 years, 23 years, something like that. So quite a long time. Um, and then he spent the majority of that time at the Tier 1 unit. So he's seen a lot of combat. Uh, you know, he has a lot of deployments. And uh, when they were talking, he was just, they were talking about, you know, going into a target and, and having the headset on and you can communicate with the, uh, the, the pilot and whoever else may be talking. And, but Ron was saying that, like, the major difference from when they would go and hit a target is they have a drone overhead who can see where exactly the enemy fighters are. They have all kind of air assets. Um, and it's, and so they go in like, and he, uh, Ron had mentioned one time he was, a, they were in a compound outside of a compound and, uh, there was an enemy fighter sneaking along the wall and it was trying to, um, hit them. I, I don't remember from what angle, but then someone calls to him on the radio and explains to him exactly where the enemy is. And they were able to, you know, shoot the guy. Uh, but that's one of the major differences uh, with, you know, today's units and, and what you guys are doing. <laughs> yeah, we would have run over his mother to get a pair of his nogs. I'll yeah. tell you that. The night vision goggles, that would have, absolutely. <laughs> right, game changer, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I, th I think the first iteration of the nods was during vietnam but wasn't even close to what they have today you know oh yeah because then it was the uh, starlight scope right it was big it was heavy and you uh the eye that you use to look through the scope it would ruin your night vision ah <laughs> uh, right so when you take your eye off the scope you can't see yourself yeah right yeah right. it's night and your eye is so used to that green look you know right mm. Absolutely. It just <laughs> when I heard about the uh, over the years, how those nogs have developed is like, oh, what we would have done to get one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Change the game for you. Um, Absolutely. Sure. You own the night. You can move even the triple canopy jungle. Right. Mm. So in. Um, in the in the triple canopy jungles. Um, particularly at night, you, you can, what was your vision like? Were you able to see in front of you or was that, was it like pitch black for the most part? Oh yes. Yeah. Um, you could have, um, move your hand in front of your face and not see it. That's crazy. Oh yeah. So usually by, by the time the night fell, we would be in the, uh, R R O N for the night, rest overnight spot, have the perimeter set up, have Claymore mines out as part of security. And you had mentioned that on that one mission that you wrote about in your book, how the guy sort of like touched your boot. Uh, had something like that happened a second time, or was that the only time? That was the only time. We had him get close. We had tigers that uh, walked around our perimeter wow. a few times. But was the closest uh, contact with an enemy um on my last mission we were in the ashaw 
and we had had light contact. And at one point I was facing north and we were in like it was elephant grass and some light brush area and some small trees that were maybe 20, 30 foot tall, only like the first canopy of jungle, not triple canopy. Mm-hmm. And I could hear movement on the other side of the grass, like somebody was moving through it. And so we had a four-man team, so my area of responsibility was looking north. At one point, a young NVA soldier, his face started to emerge from the grass, the the jungle grass, elephant grass. And I could see his face. And I could tell that his hands with the AK-47 were down. And I had my car 15 right at him. So at one point, and we were like maybe at the most three to four feet away from each other. Wow. It was almost like a vision. It wasn't clear, but the jungle and the vegetation was so thick with the grass that as he kind of came through it, I could see and make out the feature. I could tell he was young. He saw me and saw the car. He stopped and he backed out. And so that was my last close call with an enemy soldier. And you had uh, two tours to Vietnam or one? Two, yeah. uh, My first tour was April 68 to April 69. Came home at 10th Group for a few months up at Fort Devens. Hated it there. Uh, went back, um, went to the Pentagon, got orders to go back and was able to get reassigned to CCN. I got back on recon team Idaho where Lynn Black was the one zero. So I was his one one for a while. Then we took turns being one zero for a couple missions. And then they finally said, hey, you guys got too much experience there. Lynn, you come with us. So Lynn went off to a new career in SOG. Oh, so you guys were initially, uh, so his, when he was on Alabama, that was after he had left Idaho or before? No, that's all before. This is 68. When I came back in October of 69, Lynn was the one zero. Because when I left in April 69, I turned the team over to Lynn. He became the one zero. Okay. And then a freshman ran several missions with him. And then a freshman went home right before I got back. And so then I became Lynn's one one because he had the team. He knew the latest and uh I was highly respected Lynn. And I told him I'd be glad to be his one one anytime. And did you do um did you have like a full tour your second time or was that cut short? I feel like I remember reading something. Yeah, something it was like cut that. short. Okay. We had a, a West Point guy and I in fact in that last mission it's, it came down to, we had some equipment. He forced us to carry with a four-man team. I told him if it didn't work, that I would destroy it in the field. And so it didn't work. We were in contact. I destroyed it. I came back. He said, oh, I never said that. And so we had words. And then he said, I'm going to ruin your special forces career. I didn't realize when I extended, I had to extend my um military service commitment I initially listed for three years so in order to go back to Vietnam I extended it five months 
And that extension was up for two weeks from the day that me and that colonel had words. So he said, you got to be out of camp by first light. So that night, me in Idaho, the men of RT Idaho, we had a party, a big party. Everybody got drunk. They all passed out. Hep, Hep, my interpreter, was the last one, and a dear soul, maybe 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, and he goes, my, are you finished? And I said, yes, Hep, let's get some sleep. He sat down, and he just passed out right outside the hooch, our team hooch. So I picked him up, dusted him off, carried him back into the hooch, put him in bed, went back to my hooch, finished packing, First light, I left base, went down, pulled guard duty for two weeks, and then got out of the Army. Wow. And uh, I know just from seeing posts on social media um, that uh, some saw guys were able to keep in contact with some of their um, either Vietnamese counterparts or, uh, you know, whoever it was they were running with. Um did you ever speak to any of those guys again after you left Vietnam? A few. Yes, sir. Um, Lynn Black, I stayed in touch with. And then um, we had a couple of spider parks. And because um, Spider stayed and he was a career, he was a career uh, sergeant. He eventually rose to the rank of command sergeant major. And uh, they ran missions out of Panama. And Spider could speak six or seven different languages. And he was in Korea for a while. Uh, just an amazing, amazing man. Just a classic Green Beret. And then um, after all of that, Spider went on to, to a career in the VA. And um, did great work there. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, like you know, like I said when when we started this, it's really an honor to be able to uh, you know talk to you and have you on my show, especially because your book was the first book I'd ever read about SOG and and Vietnam, oh. uh, and uh, you know, like I said, it was just sort of something that just blew my mind because this is an event that. Uh, or a series of events that took place in a unit that existed, and uh, I'd never known anything about it. You know, just those stories are really remarkable, and I encourage uh, anyone listening to uh, go pick up your book. Uh, you can get it anywhere books are sold, right? Amazon or... Yeah, right now it's Amazon. Uh, Amazon is the main primary distributor of the book okay. and they have um both the paperback and ebooks and uh across the fence and my second book on the ground right they are both now available as audiobooks also yeah i actually got a um the other day so i have audible which is amazon's uh, audiobook application and so i i got your um i got across the fence an audible um, I, I listened to some of it before we podcasted just to sort of refresh my memory. Um, sure. And both are narrated by you? Yes, sir. I'm too cheap to hire a uh, 
hire somebody to do it. I, I called up Tom Selleck, but he was busy. So I said, oh, the hell with it. I'll just do it. <laughs> okay, awesome. So, yeah, you know, like I said, it was it was great to do this. I, I hope anyone listening, if you want to read and learn about, you know, what these remarkable group of soldiers were doing, I encourage you to pick up these books. Um, and, you know, like I said, it was it was great having you on here, and I appreciate you taking out the time to do this. And I want to thank you for your service as well. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate that. And I thank you for the opportunity to have a chance to speak to your growing audience. I understand you're doing good things there, and I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you, sir.